Well, greetings to you all. It's good to be back home. I sort of snuck out of here, missed last Sabbath and parts of two weeks, but uh, I had a granddaughter that I had not seen since the day she was born, and she's four now, and another granddaughter that's a year old that I hadn't seen, and of course my daughter and her husband as well down in South America, so I went to Chile to see them, and uh, I found it quite interesting, and I, that I don't try to do much on a personal level in terms of announcements, but in discussing things with her, <clears throat> you'll remember the sermon I gave just before leaving here about the fasts of Zechariah and so on. Uh, she's been keeping those for the last six years, and even though they're independent, They've been keeping the Passover the way we are now going to begin keeping it, or tried to start last spring at any rate, for the past two years. So she says, I asked her why. She says, well, I was reading the Bible, and the way we always did it didn't fit. <laughs> I thought that was very interesting. <clears throat> and I'm finding now that we sent out a couple of hundred of the articles about it, that there are people here and there who felt somewhat the same way. Uh, in some cases were doing it, and in some cases thought that the way it had been being done was wrong. So people who have been studying the Bible are beginning to come up with some of the same answers that we are coming up with. And I might add as well that we're beginning to get some feedback from those first 200 letters that went out. Quite a few positive comments are coming back. Uh, not many negative yet, but I do understand that there is one organization that has come down pretty hard as a result of those articles upon some people, several families who were attending with them, but were with us as well, but attending partly out of convenience and partly for the fellowship and so on, but they've been taken off their responsibilities in song leading and sermonette giving, and there's a meeting scheduled uh, for this sometime in the next few days to discuss the whole thing. So I wouldn't be surprised if they got the boot uh, as a result of this. I sort of anticipated that might happen in that case, uh, and apparently it is. I knew that somewhere along the line, I've known for several years that this has been going on, that sooner or later there would come a point where we would not be tolerated, put it that way, or more properly, God and his word would not be tolerated. Of course, they wouldn't look at it that way because they think they're following God and his word, and we think we are. So uh, be that as it may, I knew there would come a time when the trails would cross or the swords would cross and uh, these things would begin to come to pass. And this is a very volatile issue. <clears throat> I know some of you are very concerned that we get the information out to more people. We have about 500 or yeah, 540 email addresses lined up ready to send as well as another 200 approximately uh, physical addresses of people uh, that are ready to go out. 
Uh, that means that with the 200 we've already mailed, we have at least, or right at, a thousand, or very nearly a thousand addresses to disseminate this to, and it will go from there to others. So, uh, very interesting. There's some comments up in Wyoming as well uh, about it, very positive ones. So we're going to get a certain amount of positive feedback, which we anticipated from Second Chronicles 30, but we're going to get far more persecution and uh, denial and negative, negativity as a result. Uh, I have waited to send more letters and emails out in hopes the uh, website would be up and functional. They are working on it uh, pretty much daily, trying to get everything together. And even though it's not uh, really operable as yet, more and more information is being put on it. And it should be, they say, uh, ready by about Wednesday. So I hope that that is true. I don't think we can delay this much longer because we're drawing nearer and nearer to Passover. And I wanted it to have time to uh, penetrate various places by then. So uh, we do want to get it on out there. I just didn't want them to go to the website and see nothing there or see something that was just that had some errors and so on at the beginning and then maybe never go back. I wanted there to be information there if they wanted to delve further into what we are believing and teaching. So we've been waiting for that is the only thing that's been holding up. I did pick up another 400 copies of both articles yesterday and uh, we got a very favorable price. I, I had anticipated something like $400 for the 400 copies uh, based on the estimate that the gal had verbally given me. I dropped them off on my way to the plane uh, early last week or the week before, whenever it was. Uh, and uh, when I got back in there yesterday, they handed me a bill for $2,125. And I said, this isn't really what I was anticipating. So they called the manager who was at home, and she came back in, and we talked a while, and she brought it down to $416. Uh, so that, that was more palatable to me. But she said, so that we won't have any more errors, she says, I'm going to write this out. So she wrote it out with a year's guarantee at that price which I, is remarkable, really, because prices are going up. They expect gasoline to rise another 25 cents in the next week or 10 days. Uh, so freight is going to be higher, ink will be higher, paper will be higher, but we do have a written guarantee of that price for another year. Now, of course, if everything doubles, they may throw out the guarantee. I don't know, but at least we're established now with that printer, and we... I, I, most of you have not seen that, but this time we put it in a booklet form on better paper and got it for essentially the same price as we did those earlier just on pages. So it's stapled in the middle and folded like a booklet. And uh, that will be an improvement with this next batch we send out. Um, <laughs> as Nelson was giving the sermonette, I, I put something together that I had never quite realized before, he was quoting that scripture about standing in the breaches, and it's the first time I ever realized that we wear pants in the kingdom. For what it's worth. 
Uh, we will need some volunteer help tomorrow here in the hall. Uh, Nelson said about 10. We need to move essentially everything out of this room so that we can uh, foam around these skylights that have been doubled now. And you see there's not water on the floor, hasn't been, uh, although it could still weep a little bit around where the metal is exposed up there. So we want to uh, get the foamer in here and foam around those as well as put another layer of foam on here for a little better insulation. And that should stop the individual drips because there are some places where that's so thin that it's still making water between the foam or from as if it's too close to the metal. So we'll put another layer of that on and then I want to paint all of this as well as soon as we get done foaming. And the floor tile has come in. Got a call yesterday afternoon. So I'll pick that up uh, early this week. We'll get the floor tiled. And uh, my, the trimming out and the banisters that were put on back there, the thread did really have improved the looks in here. And uh, we get this all painted and get the floor tile down. It's, it's going to really look nice. I also want to get the shop up next door as soon as possible, and then we can put food storage and that type of thing over there instead of having piles of wheat here in the back and so on like we have at the moment. So I anticipate things will look much better and be far more finished. They're also framing the showers, and hopefully we'll have the tile in them before uh, Passover as well. So I really appreciate all the hard work that's been going in. And I commented to someone yesterday, maybe I need to go away more often. Uh, things are getting done. That was said partly tongue-in-cheek. Uh, I've been able to accomplish something myself by not being involved, as, as involved in the physical work in getting the articles out. And I, I'm going to bend uh, the time now to work on a calendar booklet and hopefully have that out also within the next two weeks with an explanation as to why we keep the days we keep and so on. Uh, and I think that now I have, I think I said this before I left, but it's come clear in my mind even on this trip, I worked on it some, that uh, a history of what has occurred in the past and an understanding of what will have to occur in the future in terms of prophecy in the calendar make us able now to explain the history of the calendar in a way that no one has put together as yet. Uh, there have been many, many calendar papers come out, but uh, no one has gotten the full story yet that will disallow the Hebrew calendar completely and show that it could not have gone back as far as they claim and that it will change back to the 360 days before, at least by the time, the Great Tribulation starts. And that gives us then, with that history and that prophecy, a basis for making whatever calendar decisions have to be made today in dealing with the 365 and a quarter day year. So I think we can present a more complete package. I've been wanting to put a calendar booklet out for some time. In fact, it's stretched into years. But as I look at it now, I don't think I had enough information to give a fully rounded explanation. I could have done the same thing everyone else has done essentially and that is show my idea of how the calendar ought to be. But I don't think I could have proved and shown as clearly as I can now why things are the way they are, what they have been and what they will be. And in so doing I think we can have a more, far more complete picture. So. 
I hope you'll pray about that over this next uh, week to two weeks because I want to start putting that together and it will be very, very much on my mind during this period of time. I think that it needs to be published on the website as well uh, so that that explanation is there. Okay, let's go back. But, uh, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm lost. When is that? Thursday? Thursday night is New Moon Bible Study, 7.30. Slipped my mind, I'm sorry. Thursday night. We're right here. Now let's go to Isaiah. <clears throat> we got into, and actually went through, chapter 60 last time, but there's some interesting information that I, I think we need to consider. It would have been nice to have some of this at the beginning of this study of this book, but it fits in quite nicely here as well. Marla showed me something in her Bible this morning that's a little written as a, an introduction to the book of Isaiah. Uh, quite interesting, and it got me thinking, so I put some more together on it. But I want to read this paragraph to you. It says, Isaiah is like a miniature Bible. The first 39 chapters, like the 39 books of the Old Testament, are filled with judgment upon immoral, idolatrous men. Judah has sinned, the surrounding nations have sinned, the whole earth has sinned. Judgment must come, for God cannot allow such blatant sin to go unpunished forever. The first 39 books do cover that information. Uh, remember in chapter 40, we saw a change where it said uh, to cry aloud and begin to publish good news. Well, the last 27 chapters then deal with that. They do flash back some. They show uh, impending judgment on the church and the world in places. But from 40 on, it is essentially positive. Now that equates 27 chapters to the 27 chapters of the New Testament when salvation was introduced in the book of Matthew and carried through the book of Revelation. Now I realize that mankind divided the books of the Bible into chapters. Uh, but perhaps God inspired at least some of that because it is interesting to see how this is put together. He says that in, in here, the final 27 chapters, like the 27 books of the New Testament, declare a message of hope. The Messiah is coming as a Savior and a Sovereign to, tear, to bear a cross and to wear a crown. Isaiah's prophetic ministry spanning the reigns of four kings of Judah covers at least 40 years. Some have estimated as high as up to 60 years, but certainly at least 40 years. So 39 chapters cover basically the sins of man. The last 27 offer hope and salvation. Same way that the whole Bible is written. Now isn't it interesting that the Bible itself, and this isn't a division of man, but God placed 66 books in the Bible. Now isn't that a strange number in a way to consider God's word? 66 books, numbers of man. 
Isaiah contains a total of 66 chapters. Let's break it down a little bit. The six days of the week represent six days that God says we can do our own work. He's allowing us, in a sense, to do our own thing, if you will. And then you have, so you have then the Sabbath, which represents the millennium, as Hebrews 4 points out. Then you have another six, six, the days of man, plus 6,000 years that those represent, where man basically is also allowed to do his thing, to go his own way. So the six days of the week represent it, and then the 6,000 years of man's endeavors before Christ returns also are represented by six, 6,000 years. Then another thought is that the number of the beast at the end is six, six, six. Now you add another six to have three sixes. So man's way, represented by six days of the week, Man's way represented by the first 6,000 years. And then the final government where man tries to rule the world adds another six. Six, six, six. So Isaiah, with 66 chapters, represents man's endeavors up until God takes a hand and establishes the seventh. The entire Bible, 66 books, also represents, beginning in Genesis, the first six days of the week, and concluding in Revelation, 66 books, represents the first 6,000 years of man's endeavors upon the earth. That is essentially all the Bible covers. Now I begin to understand why God made it 66 books. 39 in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, 27 in the New Testament under the New Covenant, where hope of salvation is brought in and offered to man. It gives us small clues about what will happen at the end of man's and Satan's reign. That there will be a seventh Sabbath, seventh-day Sabbath, There will be a 7,000 years of peace and happiness on the earth. But it doesn't go into it much, does it? All it does is brings us up to that point and says, things will be good. And if you don't be good, you won't be there. End of the book of Revelation. Very interestingly put together, and I think that Isaiah, as they pointed out here, really is a microcosm of the entire Bible. So what we are doing is a mini-study of the whole Bible by the time we get through the book of Isaiah. Now also interesting, I find, is that at the beginning of chapter 60, we have, well, up to 39 you have what they describe here. Then we see blessings returning to the church and to God's people from 40 through 59, with some admonishments sprinkled in about obeying and how enemies will come against us, but certainly a blessing returning before the millennium, 
And this can be borne out, as I mentioned uh, in the sermon before I left, by Joel, where he says, the former and latter rains will be given to us in the first month of the year. And in Haggai 9.24, a different blessing is mentioned, because in chapter 2, toward the end, it talks about how he will return blessings to us on the ninth month and the 24th day. So it obviously has to be speaking of two different types or levels of blessing, uh, one coming in the first month, the other coming in the ninth month. But those are to the church and to the latter temple as it is being built before the millennium, before the return of Christ. Then up through 59, he's still telling us about how things are evil in the world and in the church and how truth is failing and that there's no hope for man. He concludes that in chapter 19 about how a, a prophecy, about how they will fear the name of the Eternal from the West and His glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Eternal shall lift up a standard against him. I think that is an obvious uh, reference to the two witnesses. Uh, the flood of Revelation 12 is an army sent after the church who has to flee for its very life. And God will set up the two witnesses as a standard and the end-time church as a standard as well against the enemy, which will at that time then include the whole world. Everyone will worship the beast except those few who are faithful to God. So we have a breaking point here at the end of chapter 59. Verse 20, the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and to them that turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Eternal. So there's going to be a first resurrection, and he predicts that it happens right here. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Eternal. It reminds us of what the covenant is that he made. My spirit that is upon you, and my word which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, nor out of the mouth of your seed, nor out of the mouth of your seed's seed, says the Eternal, from henceforth and forever. So he's going to give us his word at the end. All things have to be restored. If not, he's going to come and smite the earth with the final curse. It has to be restored. And God will bless as a result of that. And then... He reminds us here that this is the covenant that he made with us, the new covenant, and that once it is restored, it will never, ever leave again. There will never be another time when God turns his face from us. And you have a change then in chapter 60, looking forward or beginning with the first resurrection, and continuing through the rest of the book of Isaiah. Now that I find interesting as well, because if you consider it being introduced in chapter 60, you have seven chapters then representing the ushering in of the kingdom of God. It ends in 66, right on the precipice of that being here and it all being introduced. Seven chapters, perfect, complete number, showing from the resurrection on how it's going to be.
There are some flashbacks in here a little bit, but for the most part, it is from the resurrection, the first resurrection return of Christ onward. He says, Arise, shine, for your light is come. Now, you will find the parallel that I've mentioned about Isaiah representing the Bible, the entire Bible, from chapter 60 through 66. There are many, many places in these seven chapters that are quoted in the book of Revelation. Almost word for word. The setting is the same. The words are the same. The promises are the same. So what you're seeing in Isaiah 60 through 66 is also a summary of the book of Revelation. As we go through this, you'll note that very clearly. Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the eternal is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. Doesn't he say that the sun and the moon will cease to give their light, and great darkness will come over the earth? But the eternal shall rise upon you, and his glory shall be seen upon you. Well, when does the first resurrection occur? It occurs at the end of the three and a half years of great tribulation. And I now believe that those who are faithful will rise at that point in the eyes of the world and go to the Father's throne and stay there a year, have a honeymoon for a year with Jesus Christ and the Father following the wedding, and that the day of the Lord, which Matthew 25 clearly says comes, or 24, end of it, I guess, whichever it is, comes right after the tribulation. After these days, it says, immediately will come the day of the Lord. After these days of tribulation. The day of the Lord is a time of darkness. So this indeed in chapter 60 introduces the first resurrection and that time of darkness known as the day of the Lord. It doesn't come during the last year of the tribulation as the church taught, but as Matthew says, Immediately after those days of tribulation, the sun and the moon will be darkened. That is the day of the Lord, a day representing a year, and the seven last plagues will be visiting this earth, while those who are faithful will be at the throne of God, learning to be kings and priests and having their jobs explained and prepared so that we might come back with Christ at the end of that year, <clears throat> although it will be cut short, it appears so that some flesh will be saved alive. So this is the period of time that he's talking about here. Well, we went through this in that last sermon, so I don't want to, to spend a lot of time on this particular chapter. I want to move on, <clears throat> but it does talk about the Gentiles coming to our light and kings to the brightness of our rising in verse 3. So they're going to see and behold and then they were going to be, are going to be completely humbled, most of them dying, <clears throat> in the day of the Lord. And they're ready, then they will be ready to come. They'll come to those whom God has glorified. Uh, end of verse 7, he says, I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are these that fly as a cloud and as the doves to their windows? talking about the time we get our wings. We'll be able to fly, and they'll wonder about us. 
No, those, those are people I knew. And now they can fly, and I'm earthbound. That will be fairly impressive. He says, he, in his wrath he smote us, into verse 10, but in my favor have I had mercy on you. So salvation will occur in spite of us. God will forgive, and he will administer salvation. Talks about the gates being open continually, to not be shut by day nor night. Uh, that's reminiscent of Revelation 21, the holy city being on the earth, and the gates not being shut day nor night. So this is projecting forward to the time that the kingdom of God is here on the earth. And for those of you who have not heard those nine sermons on how... Uh, word won't come to my mind. How, not selective, but how, how exclusive is the church. That series of sermons show very clearly, I think, with scriptural proof that the holy city and the kingdom of God, not just the kingdom of God, but the holy city of Revelation 21 will come down, the Father and the Son coming down at the beginning of the millennium. And we'll see that in these chapters of Isaiah 60 shown very clearly before we reach the end of it. I mean, he's just introduced the first resurrection and the kingdom of God coming. And he's talking about the gates will be open day and night. For the nation and kingdoms that will not serve you shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. Let's see what he calls us into verse 14. And they shall call you uh, the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. We are that holy city which comes down from heaven. And that's what Isaiah is introducing here. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated so that no man went through you, be prepared to be forsaken and hated, brethren. We haven't already been. We certainly are going to be. And these Passover articles are going to help that process along. I'll guarantee you that. Uh, they will not be well received by most. But we expect that, and that's okay. The truth is the truth. And it does not make any difference how people react as far as we are concerned. I am only concerned about God's reaction. And I know he cannot help but be pleased that we are following through with what he has shown us. He has to be. Let's go on down to verse 19. The sun shall be no more your light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord shall be unto you an everlasting light in your God, your glory. The sun shall no more go down, neither shall your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord shall be your everlasting light, and the days of your morning shall be ended. That again is mentioned in chapter 21 of Revelation, that the Father and the Son will be the light of the holy city. And we'll see in chapter 65 and 66 that indeed there are people on the earth after the new heavens and new earth come. It's not after the earth has been burned up, which will never happen, by the way, uh, that a new earth, a new orb, will be created. We thought we understood that, but it isn't true, and it isn't scriptural. 
All right, let's go on down uh, into verse 22. I, the Lord, will hasten it in his time. God is going to cause this plan to work out where his kingdom will be established. Now let's go to 61 where we left off last time. The Spirit of the Eternal God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to pro proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Now Isaiah was sent with that express purpose in mind. <coughs> he had to go through and show the problems. He had to show us what we are and what we've been and what we needed to do to turn to God. Then it is a message of hope. He was anointed. That's what this book is for, to preach good tidings to the meek. Those who are meek enough to hear and to understand Isaiah's message are also meek enough perhaps, if they follow through, to be a part of his kingdom. Meekness and humility is what he's looking for. To those will I look, he says, who have a contrite heart and tremble at my word. That's what he's looking for. It doesn't matter what we've believed about anything. It doesn't matter what our traditions have been. When we see what God says, will we respond to it and do it? both doctrinally and from the heart and the head emotionally. Good tidings to the meek to bind up the broken hearted. Hasn't the church pretty well had its heart broken? All of the expectations we used to have in worldwide of having a golden pass to a place of safety in the kingdom of God? Haven't those hopes and those ideas that we had at that time been pretty well dashed? Isn't the church today pretty much brokenhearted as a whole? Well, these messages in here were written to bind up the brokenhearted, to pro proclaim liberty to the captives. We've been in captivity to Babylon, to the world, to Satan's system, all of our lifetimes and experience in both this world and in the church, haven't we? And God is now showing us a way to escape from slavery. Just as those who have been physically in slavery respond to freedom, we should respond to God and his lifting the yoke of Babylon off our neck, and as we have a personal responsibility in breaking that yoke. But he makes a way possible. We have to break the yoke and get away from and out of Babylon. He's left that for us to do. I've pondered that one some over the last couple, three years, and maybe I've commented on this, but it comes to mind at the moment. Because someone asked me within the last two or three weeks a question. Why does it seem so hard for us to get our houses sold and come out where you are? We want to. We want to be there. But we're having trouble selling our homes and getting our plan 
accomplished so, so that we can. And I think part of the answer to that <coughs> is that God did not say he would do that for us. God said, you break the yoke of Babylon off your neck, you leave Babylon. He does not say anywhere that I've read that he will do that for us, does he? He tells us, you accomplish that. I think that is why we have not found it an easy path. He wants us to accomplish something. And for the most part, he wants us to accomplish that on our own. He wants to see what we will do. Will we obey him or not? He could have explained to Abraham, look Abraham, I'm going to have you go through a charade. I'm going to have you take Isaac up on the mountain and take your knife along, but I would also like you to strap a live lamb on the back of a camel and take it along too because even though it appears you're going to up to sacrifice your son, uh, I want you to take a lamb along because at the last moment I'm going to intervene and I'm, I'm going to have you offer the lamb instead. God could have made it a lot easier on poor old Abraham, couldn't he have? But Abraham had to act not knowing what God would do in faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. God wants us to proceed with the instructions he gives in his word to see if we will obey what he says whether or not we can see the answer. We have to be tested as to our commitment to him and to what his book says, whether or not it appears easy or possible. We have his instruction. Will we follow it or not? That's what life is all about. That's the presentation God has always made to man and to Israel. To Adam and Eve, to Israel when they came out of the desert, or out of Egypt, onto the desert. This is what I want you to do. Will you do it? In spite of employers, in spite of traditions of men, in spite of family, in spite of lands and homes, in spite of anything that comes before you, will you put my word, and therefore me, first in your life? <clears throat> that is what God wants to see. <coughs> if he made this all easy for us, he could not make that determination. If, a, if life was a bed of roses with no thorns, he would not learn about us, nor would we have anything really to overcome. <coughs> so
So God has not made it easy to follow his instructions. In fact, didn't Christ say, I have made the way narrow and difficult. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be that find that. So we have to find and follow the hard, narrow, ruddy, rugged, uphill road. That's what it's all about. Now, he realized that mankind could not do this of and by himself. So he sent Jesus Christ to have him die, and he sent the Holy Spirit to comfort, to strengthen, to lead, to inspire us, so that we could accomplish this. Because if we walk after the flesh, there's no way. If we walk after the Spirit, it will happen. But we have to choose daily whether we will obey God's law or whether we will follow the dictates of human nature. And that's why we pray daily and more than once a day because we need more than that if we are going to truly walk in the Spirit. If we don't have contact closely with God day by day, didn't Paul say the inner man is renewed day by day? If we do not renew his mind, his spirit, remind ourselves before him and ask for his help, we simply can't do this thing. But if we turn to him with our heart and we pray to him and read his word daily, then we will. Didn't he tell the kings to read the Word of God every day. He told the kings of Israel that. He told Joshua that as they went into the Promised Land. We have to do it. That's what it takes. It isn't to spend so much time a day praying and studying so that we might appear righteous. It's praying and studying and drawing close to God so we can be righteous. That's the purpose of it. So we're here to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now isn't that, going back to Isaiah 58, why he told us to fast? To break the yoke. See, it isn't something God does automatically. The yoke of Babylon that has been laid upon us is not broken easily or automatically. What happened with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They had to break the yoke of Babylon off their neck by standing up for the truth. And they had to go into a lion's den and into a fiery furnace in order to prove that. They had to walk by faith. They had to show before the whole kingdom of Babylon and its rulers that they would obey God no matter what. And they trusted that God would take care of them. It is not coincidental whatsoever that those stories are in the book of Daniel. Because the book of Daniel is an end-time book written to you and me, not totally unlocked yet, but written to us, and those parts at the beginning of Daniel are quite clear. We have to walk by faith, walk by the words of God, 
and delivery will come. I'm going to introduce a book to you, which I have ordered. It's called The Maker's Diet. And I read it on this trip. But what it basically boils down to is that he has taken all the foods, all the essential oils, everything that is mentioned in the Bible, and put together the kind of diet God would have us eat. Lo and behold, it's pretty much what Herbert Armstrong preached in the 50s, and what I have preached to you recently is coming away from the foods of Babylon. Now he backs up with scientific information the things that I told you that some people have tried to wiggle around with their little bit of scientific knowledge. But it, 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 it establishes and corroborates everything that I have preached in the last two or three years about coming out of the ways of this world and the foods of Babylon. And he shows that your health will be far better if you follow this than in following the diets that he calls it the Standard American Diet, acronym SAD. I like that one. We won't get into that today beyond this introductory remark, but it's quite an interesting book and uh, one that I think we need to pay attention to. And it will help proclaim liberty to us in terms of health. And Isaiah is also about the opening of the prison to them that are bound. We have been imprisoned. We have been bound as slaves in this world system. And this book shows us much of the way to get out of that and encourages us to do it. But God expects us to do a lot of it on our own. He will open a way, but he expects us to walk that way. And I think that is why he has intervened a little bit in some cases. Not much or at all it appears in some cases. He expects us to do our part. And once we do, he will make sure everything works out. But that is the whole test of man's existence on the earth, and it's what we are under today. So Isaiah goes on in verse 2, continuing his thought, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. So, He's here to give us freedom and opportunity, and he's here also to give the warning that the power, the vengeance, the anger of God is about to be unleashed on this world. Here we find ourselves today, right at this precipice, right at this transition period in the history of man. We are living in what has to be the most exciting time in the history of man because we are right at the end of the six days or six thousand years if you will of mankind's way of living and we are right at the transition where God begins to take a hand in a very dramatic way 
And he begins that by taking a hand in a scattered, broken church, which he has scattered, using Satan and man to do. But he is behind it all, just as he was with Job. He let Satan do the dirty work, but God is the one that sicked him on it. Now, he may have allowed Tkachas, he may have allowed Satan, he may have allowed others to do the dirty work, but God is behind it and his hand is in it. When he spews you out of his mouth, you know you've been spewed. So that's where we are today. And we're right at the point where he is going to begin to turn it around and turn his face back to us in one day and remove our sins as a cloud so that the sun might shine. We're right at that point. What could be a more exciting time to live when we will ourselves experience the change from this mess that we have been living in to the peacefulness of the latter temple and the blessing of God, which will then carry on into the first resurrection and the kingdom of God. Just as he blesses us, if we are faithful and meek, he will turn his anger on the rest of the world. There is a way to escape. So Isaiah was to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Didn't Christ say in the Sermon on the Mount something about the mournful being let me go back and read it. it won't quite, the quote won't quite come. Matthew 5. I think that's the one I'm thinking of. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's quoting Isaiah right there in the Sermon on the Mount. This verse. To comfort all that mourn. So he's talking about those who will respond to God in Matthew 5. Matthew 5 sets the New Testament standard, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, sets the New Testament standard for those who would live under the New Covenant. So when he tells us that he will comfort us if we mourn inside for what is going on in the earth and what is going on in our lives, we will be comforted. So he's talking about the time when God intervenes to punish the world is the time when he will comfort those who have been mourning. And only those in the church truly have mourned the ways of this world. Everybody else is all excited about it. To appoint to them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes. We're sitting in the ashes and embers of the church, right? And he says he's going to give us beauty instead of ashes. I find that acceptable. I find that exciting. Something to look forward to. I'm tired of ashes. I'm tired of heat and burning. I would love to see beauty again. Now he says that the wicked will be ashes under our feet at the end of the book of Zechariah. So he's going to give us beauty instead of ashes, and he's going to turn this whole society of Satan and man into ashes. But we will rise above that. Literally, rise above that. The oil of joy for mourning. 
the essential oils of the Bible are mentioned over and over and over again. The oil of joy for mourning. Tears will be dried. We'll have nothing to mourn about anymore. But we'll have the oil of joy. Maybe it's interesting that I came across this book at this juncture. I think when you read it, you cannot help but see that. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness will be full of praise and excitement and good tidings instead of heaviness. And we have borne some years of heaviness now, haven't we? It's hurt. It's been very hurtful. That they might be called trees of righteousness. Doesn't he say in chapter 41, I believe it is, he'll plant seven trees in the wilderness. Right after he introduces the blessings that return from Isaiah 40 on through the book. He mentions planting seven trees in the desert. Yeah, that's chapter 41, verse 19. I have it marked right here. They might be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. So he says that seven trees of righteousness will be planted in the desert, and then he brings it back in here, showing how the blessings will return. At the same time, later on in the book of Zechariah, chapter 11, he talks about tearing down three large trees and the works of three shepherds in one month, a very short period of time. So he's going to establish trees. That reminded me of Ezekiel 17. That chapter is a parable and a riddle that shows that Herbert Armstrong was sent, Joe Dukats came, and they both died in the midst of Babylon. And then God says, I will take a tender twig of a tall tree and plant it myself. He's going to plant his people that they might grow. There's another one back here that we've already covered which talks about putting roots downward and bearing fruit upward. And they shall build the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations and they shall repair the waste cities the desolations of many generations. Didn't he say if we would fast for the right reasons, to break the bond of Babylon off our neck, to get rid of sin, and to deal our bread to the hungry, we would be the restorer of paths in which to walk and the repairs of the breaches. Here he's showing that that prophecy will come true. And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the alien shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. Chapter 31 talks about, or 20, 31 or is it 29? Or 30? I could always, 30, 29? Anyway, it says your eyes will see your teachers. We will be the kings and the priests in the world tomorrow, and we will have people that we've not known who will attach themselves. Zechariah talks about how Ten men will take hold of one Jew, a true spiritual Jew, and say, you teach us, you lead us. They will come seeing the product of what living the kind of life we are striving to live will produce. Then they'll want it. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. Revelation 5.10 will be kings and priests and reign with Christ a thousand years taken, quoted from right here. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. 
the servants of God. Talks about the servants of God several times, I think, in the book of Revelation. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall you boast yourselves. For your shame you shall have double implying blessing. Not double shame, but for the shame that we have gone through, we will receive double the reward or blessing. Now isn't that what Paul said about the ministry there when he was speaking to Timothy? To those that have labored in the gospel and gone above and beyond, he says, reward them double for the work they've done. That is a principle that God will bring forward for all the suffering we have to do because of the stake of Jesus Christ. God will reward us double. It says in the book of Hebrews that he, Jesus Christ, despised the shame. He was shamefully treated beyond what any man has gone through. And he bore the shame of all our sins, all of them. And he hadn't committed one. If anybody ever had a right to say, look, I didn't do any of that. He did. But he accepted all our sins. And that made him guilty. But he despised that shame and carried through and gave his life for us. Now he is the firstborn of many brethren. He is rewarded greater than anyone will be rewarded because he gave more than anyone else. There is a blessing for giving. There is a blessing for sacrificing ourselves. And the shame that we are going through today and will go through between now and the time of the first resurrection will be rewarded beyond our belief. For your shame you shall have double, and for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Has the church been in a confused state the last 20 years? Oh my, what a mess. Pick up the journal and read it, and what a hodgepodge of men's ideas and misinterpretations of Scripture, and some of it's good, don't get me wrong, but you read that thing and it, it is it's so confusing, and I'm, not, and I'm not putting down the journal and saying this, all it's doing is reflecting what the church is. And the church is a confused mess. So if you have a paper that reports church news, you're going to have a confused mess. You can't have anything else if you report it honestly, can you? Therefore in their land they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be to them. For I, the eternal, love judgment. It's one of the weightier matters of the law, as Christ explained in Matthew 23. I hate robbery for burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth. Now, doesn't he deal with that in the book of Malachi quite clearly? He says, you've robbed me. And they say, how have we robbed you? 
Then he says in tithes and in offerings. Both. Not one or the other. Both. Can't separate. You can't have one or the other. You have to have both. He makes it a very clear point. He hates robbery for burnt offering. He hates us to come before him expecting blessing when we're not doing what we ought to be doing. And I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them, a covenant of life forever, joy and peace, if we're willing to give up what we need to give to show our obedience to him. It's interesting that he makes the Sabbath, out of the Ten Commandments, a test commandment. Because the world doesn't really want to give... I mean, they don't really have an argument, for the most part, with the other nine. At least not on paper. Because any society that makes rules to govern that society has rules against lying and cheating and stealing and adultery and covetousness and so on. The Sabbath's the one they hate. And that's why God made it a test. Mankind tends to treasure things on this earth. That's why God makes money a test to the end-time church, robbing God of that which he says clearly is his. Because he says, Jesus Christ did, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So he tests us on whether or not we are willing to give of what treasure he has allowed us to have on this earth, back to him. That is a test of our heart, is what that is. So we have the test of the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments, and we have a test of our heart in tithes and in offerings. God knows which buttons to push. That's all there is to it. And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. Your children and mine, if we follow through, are going to populate the earth during the millennium and the great white throne judgment. And people will look to our children because they will be leaders then. There will have to come a change in us and a change in our children for this to happen. That's why God is still putting the pressure on so that we might make the changes we need to make and that this prophecy will, will be fulfilled in us. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, verse 10. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Doesn't he tell us in Isaiah 52 to put on our holy garments? Isn't that mentioned several times in Scripture, and specifically right here now when he's talking about the first resurrection. The robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Now he's going to make up crowns and jewels for us. He's going to put righteous clothes on us. But he expects us right now to be preparing ourselves. Now to... This verse right here in this context should give us a very strong clue 
as to what the focus of the church ought to be right now. Not calling people out of the world. God is going to deal with them. But those whom he has called, he is now choosing from among. And we need to be decking ourselves as a bride with our clothing and our jewelry to be ready for that wedding. Doesn't he tell us in the Sermon on the Mount to seek him like we would seek silver and gold? The true riches. Doesn't he tell us to seek treasure in the kingdom of God? To lay it up there, not here. Physical wealth on this earth will mean nothing. Spiritual treasure in our bank account in heaven means everything. And being properly dressed. He's going to say something a little bit later on here about those who do not have, or that have uh, strange apparel. Or am I thinking of Zephaniah where I was reading? Anyway, he does talk about us not having strange apparel when he returns. So the focus right now ought to be on getting proper, properly attired for the wedding so that we are pure, clean, and white. Just as Paul told the church at Corinth, which was the most abominably adulterous, sinful, wretched society on the face of the earth, that he would present those people who came out of that society as chaste virgins to God. All their past forgotten, cleansed, purified, and considered virgins before God. That's the way we are to be. For as the earth brings forth her bud, and as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth in front of or before all the nations, in the eyes of the nations. It's going to be interesting to watch him show his hand somewhere within his church, right here at the end, begin to bless in a way that will make all the other virgins look around and say, wow, Look what he has done. He must have chosen that daughter of Zion to be the fairest of them all, as it says in Proverbs 31. And he will begin to do a work right here in the end time church that is going to be taken up into the mountains, set on a hill to be the light of the whole world. The rest of the world will be plunged in darkness as the tribulation starts. And it will be the only light available. And those who go out from there, two of them, as witnesses against this world and its evil society, will take that message with them. And that light will blind the world. They will hate it with a passion. They want to live in darkness. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. It is an evil society and they do not want any light from God in their eyes. But he is going to cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before the nations.
And it's going to be, as I've said before, the church against the world. The whole world. They will all worship the beast, except for a few righteous, holy, chaste virgins who cling to Christ's skirt. Chapter 62. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest. For our sake, brethren, Zion and Jerusalem, Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, are symbolic of the end-time church, the spiritual Jew. And it is only for our sake that he's doing this. Otherwise, he would destroy the earth. He says, if this does not happen, if the breaches are not healed, if all things are not restored, he will smite the earth, earth with the ultimate curse. All would die. God has to establish a latter temple and give his light to it or he would wipe out the entire earth like he almost did in Noah's day. Think he can't do it? He only saved eight then. And this time he would do it in toto, completely. You see how much depends upon a faithful remnant surviving and holding fast and enduring to the end? His whole plan would collapse if this didn't happen because he has to have 144,000 in the first resurrection. Now, he's taken some from the Old Testament. He's taken quite a goodly number, I'm sure, from the early New Testament church in their 70 years' experience, probably some through the Middle Ages, and now through our 70 years' experience in the end-time church, he is completing the number. But he can't go back in history and redesignate a bunch from the past, he has to round out the number from now. From those who still have opportunity to repent and obey. This has to happen. Now salvation, God is working. It can't happen without him. Remember what I said, we must pray and study daily to show ourselves approved and to be renewed inside so that we might walk in the Spirit. It is He who is working the salvation. And if it depended on you and me being what we ought to be on our own, the whole plan would go away, wouldn't it? So He is depending upon us to turn to Him with our whole heart so that we might find Him and He might be able to complete the number of 144,000 out of this end-time work so that that holy city of 144,000 will be established. A great deal is riding upon us, just as a great deal wrote upon the early New Testament church, just as a great deal wrote upon Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Isaiah, and on and on. Don't think for a moment but a great deal is not riding on us. We are in, if you will, 
the last roll of the dice. And God will turn up winners. Maybe that's kind of a bad analogy to use, but it's one that came to mind. Let's say, then, cast the bread upon the waters. We're the loaves. And his word will not come to him, back to him void. It will produce. So if he's called us, he expects us to produce. He expects us to follow through. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace. He's going to send peace. He's not going to hold it back beyond a certain point. He will send it. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burns. He is not going to give up to, on us, brethren, until we become the light of the world. He is going to work on us until he can get us to shine before the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hid. We might as well submit. We might as well yield. He's the potter, we're the clay. Give in to it. Accept him. Do as he says. Because he's not going to turn us loose until we shine brightly. And he will do whatever is necessary in terms of attitude adjustment. You adjust a flame on a lamp, don't you? So that it shines the brightest. He is going to continue to give us adjustments until we shine brightly before the world. If you've been to a chiropractor and been adjusted, you know there is sometimes a certain amount of pain involved. And if we do not yield willingly to God... His adjusting of our attitudes and our approach will be painful. So he's not going to rest until he has us fine-tuned. He promises that. And the Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name which the mouth of the eternal shall name. Ever read Revelation 2 and 3? Got to give us a new name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. He says he'll make jewels of us or, or, or when he makes up his crowns there in Malachi. And in the Revelation, he uses the same language. So he's talking about that time right here. This pretty well summarizes the book of Revelation, doesn't it? Or Revelation takes out of these seven chapters the story and blossoms it out into 22 chapters. But it's the same story. You shall no more be termed forsaken. We are forsaken now. Ancient Israel is divorced from God. has nothing to do with Judaism or Jews or Israelites. Paul said he counted being a Benjamite as dung. Didn't make any difference what his birth was. Being a spiritual Jew was all that mattered to it. So we will no more be termed forsaken. Neither shall your land any more be termed desolate. 
but you shall be called Hephzibah, and your land, Beulah. That means, uh, Hephzibah means, my delight is in her. Do you think Christ will delight in his bride? He'll be called, will be called, his delight. He will refer to us as his delight, or my delight, he will say to us. I'm delighted in you. That's an interesting word. We'll be the light to the world, won't we? And he calls us delight. Delight. A delight to him. And Beulah means married. When this is all done, we'll be the bride of Christ. So, this is speaking of that time. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He is going to be so happy to have his bride at long last. Wasn't there a situation in the Old Testament where Joseph worked seven years? No, not Joseph. Yeah, it was Joseph, wasn't it? For Leah and then seven more years from, for Rachel. That was Jacob. I get the story right if I keep on long enough. That fellow that worked seven years for one and then the other. Fourteen years he worked for it. Christ has been working for his bride now for 6,000 years. And he is going to be so delighted when he finally puts his arm around her and says, you are my virgin bride, I am so delighted in you. And the payoff is going to be great if we're willing to do what we need to do. Verse 6, I have set watchmen upon your walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. You that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence. You know why I keep pounding away on you? Because he says to. He says, you're watching out for my people, and you are to yell and scream and lift your voice aloud and spare not all the way through this thing. Don't let up. Keep not silence. Verse 7, and give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. So he says to the watchmen of the people, don't shut up, don't keep silence, and don't give God any rest either, until he make Jerusalem the church, the praise of all the earth. I really like verses 6 and 7 of this chapter. I think there's an awful lot of encouragement here as well as a focus on what we need to be doing. We need to be crying aloud and sparing not with God's people. And we need to be crying aloud to God himself that this thing happen. Don't give him any rest. Brethren, don't give him any rest. Keep reminding him day and night. Don't let up. You promised, Father. You said you would do this. Now always pray with the thought in the back of your mind or the front of your mind 
that we don't deserve it, that we still have a lot to do to grow and to overcome. He told all the churches, you must overcome if you're to have this new name and these crowns and all these things that chapter 62 is talking about. But we can't work salvation in ourselves. We must have his help and his strength, his guidance, his spirit. So we cry out daily that his spirit be renewed in us and we cry out to him to remember his promises. And we can pray more in faith if we're doing our part, can't we? So don't give him any rest. He tells me, don't give the people any rest. And he tells us all not to give him any rest. You see, what that tells me about God is, he loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son for the world. He can't help himself. He is a God of love. He is a God of compassion and mercy. His mercy endures forever. And what he sees happening down here bothers him. What he has had to do to the church bothers him. He doesn't like it. He is a God who loves to give blessings. He's the one who said through Christ, when a son asks for a, a fish, you don't give him a snake. He says the Father in heaven loves you. He wants you to have the fish, not the snake. But we've taken hold of the snake down here. And we have trouble turning loose of the snake, the dragon. And the dragon's den and way of living. We have trouble turning it loose. I've got a tiger by the tail, can't you see? I can't turn loose until it lets hold of me or something like that, the old song goes. Well, we got the snake by the tail. God says turn loose. But you know what's going to happen when we turn loose that snake's tail? The dragon's going to turn and bite us. So we're in a tough situation. But God says, trust me, turn loose the snake. Turn loose. Get away from the snake. Get away from Babylon. Get away from man. Get away from Satan. Come to me, and I will turn to you. And he tells us to cry aloud day and night and give him no rest so that he might do this thing and do it soon. He's given us permission. Indeed, he has given us instruction not to give him any rest until he makes it happen. You want to put this on your to-do list. Do not give God any rest. There should be somebody on this earth at all times badgering them about this. You know, if there's a few hundred or a few thousand faithful, and I think it's a few thousand, and they all pray on a round earth, it's sometime during the day and night, and if each of them prays two or three times a day, as Bible example gives, and in fact pray without ceasing in attitude, then always, as the earth spins, there will be somebody somewhere without fail at every second of the day praying, God, do what you said you would do. Therefore, he has no respite 
no rest, no moment in which somebody is not pleading with him to make this happen. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, by his own right hand and through Jesus Christ and through the human instruments he will use ultimately, surely I will no more give your corn to be meat for your enemies. And the sons of the stranger shall not drink your wine for the which you have labored. All this hard work at growing, changing, overcoming, sweating through the day's labor is going to be rewarded with a great harvest. The times when David lamented, why do the rich or the, the, the sinners seem to prosper and I don't? That prayer will never again be prayed. It will be swallowed up in victory. But they that have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. We have worked for our salvation, and he does indeed say it is a gift of God, but that we are created unto good works. So our work will be rewarded. And they that have brought it together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. We'll be before the throne of God. For the wedding and the wedding supper and the wine that he drinks new with us in the kingdom of God. Right in the courts of his holiness. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare you the way of the people. Cast up, cast up the highway. Gather out the stones. Lift up a standard for the people. Does that give you any clues to what the focus should be here at the end? He's talking about God's faithful true people here. And he says, make a way for them. Get the, ro the rocks out of the road and berm up a highway. Make a path for them, a way to go to accomplish what they have been working for all these years, these decades. Lift up a banner, a flag for them to follow, a place for them to go. Make a place for them to walk and a flag to follow. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed unto the end of the world. That's the work right up to the end of this age. Say you to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. That is the carrot that has to be placed in the front of God's people. Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Doesn't he tell us to work and that we're be to be prepared to work with him? Revelation 11, 11, 18 says the time has come for you to reward the saints. Here again we have a quotation from Isaiah in the book of Revelation. And they shall call them the holy people. Let's go up and listen to the holy people. Wouldn't that be exciting to actually be referred to as the holy people? That's what he says we'll be. The redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, desired, 
chased, desired, wished for, looked to, wanted, a city not forsaken. We will be that great city that comes down from God that Revelation talks about. Let me, let me review that just briefly. Revelation 19. Verse 7 talks about the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he said, Right blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then let's go on to chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down as a bride prepared for her husband. And he said in verse 9, end of the verse, or yeah, end of the verse, I will show you the bride, the, the Lamb's wife. And he carried and showed me the holy city, holy Jerusalem, in verse 10. Having the glory of God. And I don't have time to prove that that happens at the beginning of the millennium in this sermon, but how exclusive is the church goes through all the scriptures and shows that. A city not forsaken. We will be the city of God. Well, that's the end of the time for today and a good place to stop. But there is so much encouragement here in these last seven chapters of the book of Isaiah. God willing, we'll pick it up with chapter 63 next time.